It's another blessed occasion. We've been given this Sunday morning, this first day of the week, to assemble and to gather in the way that we are. And as I stand before the audience, certainly delighted that each of us have been given the health and the fortitude of mind to come together today in the way that we are. I'd like to at least add another thought or two about the, those announcements that Cale mentioned a moment ago. It is the case, isn't it, that our gospel meeting is just racing in our direction. Four weeks from today, that gospel meeting begins. Four weeks from today. Steve Higginbotham is perhaps rather well known. He's the preacher for the Carnes Church of Christ just outside Knoxville. And we have had him on this schedule now for several years. He's booked up enough to where, uh, again, it's not easy to get him on short notice, but we're thankful he's going to be able to be with us. Please, uh, Keep that meeting in your prayers, if you would, so that we have an encouraging, edifying meeting. Appointing elders is the title of the lesson today. And certainly, I thought it appropriate to include this at this time, given the announcement that, that our elders made before our hearing last, last Sunday morning. Let me begin the lesson, then, with some introductory thoughts. It's pretty easily to be said, isn't it, that in the life of a congregation, there are lots of occasions that are significant. I would say we're in one right now. Every meeting of the Lord's people is important. Every meeting is, in fact, a significant thing. But there are certain moments of great, colossal occasion. May I suggest certainly the appointment of a man as an elder would have to fall in that category. Because once this man assumes that position, that office, he will be a part of the leadership directing that flock. And he's going to have to stand before the God of heaven in judgment and give an answer of the degree to which he led that flock. They will have to answer to him. They're going to have to obey him. And therefore, it's a very moving thing. Today in our lesson, why don't we give some attention then to the appointment of a man as an elder what's involved in this, and certainly what obligations does this man have, and what about the congregation to him? You may notice about the bottom of that slide, the Bible on several occasions mentions in some detail these things, and so we'll be turning to 1 Timothy chapter 3 here in just a moment. As you do that, let me invite you to first of all, though, consider something that is very worthwhile. In what way does the Bible describe the eldership? It's very important. I hope that you'll bear with me for the next few moments as we look at three different words. You see, the New Testament uses three different words for the description of this office. And each one has a different connotation. It has a different idea of description behind it. As we look at all three of them, we'll put them all together and gain a much deeper appreciation for what God expects of a man who is an elder. You may notice, first of all, as the New Testament makes use of these particular words, the first one is the very word that we, at least, are more often than not in the position to use. We call him an elder. Well, first of all, you might take note that from the Old Testament times onward, there were elders in ancient Israel. And you and I understand who that was. It was these older men who, due to their wisdom and their position, occupied a matter of leadership and influence over the various tribes and ultimately over the nation of Israel itself. And there are hundreds of Old Testament references to those elders of Israel. But our interest is not today the elders of Israel. 
What about the elders of the Lord's church? We may notice even as we come to the New Testament, that word elder still on some occasions is used in a way that referred to the leadership of the old Jewish economy. But again, that's not our interest either. The word came to signify those who presided over those religious assemblies. And Jesus and our New Testament writers used those words, that word then to refer to those men who would preside in a position of leadership over the Lord's church. And that's the way in which that word is used in verses like Acts 14.23. There, as Paul and Barnabas were making their journey on what we call the first missionary journey, it says they appointed elders in every city. Now notice, here were congregations of the Lord's people, and Paul and his companions, they appointed, or at least they rose to prominence, the position of certain men as the elders of those churches. May I ask you to note, in addition to that, the thought of 1 Timothy 3, 6. Now, there is a bit of a connection. I stated earlier that those elders of the Old Testament tended to be older men who, due to their wisdom and their experience, could then serve as leaders over the tribes and otherwise. It still is true that the New Testament teaches, even in regard to the eldership of the church, the man must not be a novice. He has to be skilled enough and experienced enough and knowledgeable enough so that he knows how to handle the circumstances that will arise as a part of his leadership. Thus, it tends to be true that those who are elders are older men. But what about the next word? In addition to the word elder, the New Testament also uses the word bishop in referring to these men. Now, the word bishop is a different word than elder. Remember, elder carried the thought of, again, one who is older, but also one who, due to that age, is able to serve in a position of leadership. When it comes to bishop, note, originally that word carried the thought of inspection. It carried the idea of visitation. And therefore, it came to signify this. One who has oversight. One who occupies an overseer position. It is in that sense that, again, the elders occupy that position. They are called bishops. And that word means overseer. They see over that congregation of people. You may have noticed in the reading that Cale read a moment ago from 1 Timothy 3.1, if a man desire the office of a bishop, there's our word, the office of an episcopal, he desires a good work. This is an overseer position. Now, there may be lots of men in the congregation, but the bishop's different. He's given charge by God to see over. He has the oversight of them. You may notice, in light of that, perhaps another appreciation. It's that third word. Now, this is one that our denominational world has hijacked terribly. They use the word pastor to refer to the preacher. The preacher is not the pastor. The preacher, according to the Word of God, is not simply the pastor. The pastor, as you and I notice it, that word occurs a few times, both in the Old and the New Testament. Notice what it has to do with. It literally identifies the provision of pasture. The provision of pasturage. 
And so it came to signify a shepherd who would lead his flock to a place where there was pasture. And so he provided for, he made available to, he was their pastor. Now you and I know that that word is used in the New Testament in Ephesians 4 verse 11, where there it highlights that pastors are the elders of the church of the day today. They are these individuals who provide pasture to that flock. They provide the necessary accompaniments of teaching and fortitude and encouragement. In addition to that, might I invite you to notice Acts 20, verse 28. There is a great theological significance to this word pastor. Let me just invite you to notice this word, this verse before we will turn to another in just a moment. As Paul addressed the elders of the church in Ephesus. So keep in mind, here is a rather small group of men, and Paul addressed them personally. It was not as if they were simply members of a large group before whom he was preaching. It was he and them, and that was it. And to them, Paul said, Take heed to yourselves and to the flock over the which the Holy Ghost hath made you overseers to feed the church of God which he hath purchased with his own blood. Twice in that one verse, he called them overseers, and they had oversight. Isn't it significant then in that light? These men are shepherds. They are the shepherds of the local flock of God. They provide pasture. It's in that connection, might I invite your attention to 1 Peter 5, because here we note a very interesting usage of this concept. 1 Peter 5, beginning in verse 1, "...the elders which are among you I exhort, who am also an elder." Please note with me, Peter, in addition to an apostle, was also an elder. "...and a witness of the sufferings of Christ, and also a partaker of the glory that shall be revealed. Feed the flock of God which is among you, taking the oversight thereof, not by constraint but willingly, not for filthy lucre but of a ready mind. Neither is lords over God's heritage, but being in samples to the flock. And when the chief shepherd..." Notice, these men are shepherds, but when the chief shepherd shall appear... Ye shall receive, receive a, crown, a crown of glory that fadeth not away. So, the chief shepherd. Isn't it wonderful to imagine these men who are attempting to occupy a place as a shepherd, but they serve the chief shepherd, and they look forward to doing what's pleasing in his sight. It is with those things in mind. We've looked at the three words and given an idea that these pastors are like shepherds. They are overseers in the sense of being a bishop. And they are older men who occupy a position of leadership amongst a group of people, a la elders. But perhaps more ought to be said. As you and I notice the New Testament teaching, without fail, every single time these rare elders are referenced, it is said that there's more than one of them. There's always a plurality, and the word is plural. It is with that in mind, we can appreciate the wisdom in that arrangement. Now, a single man, perhaps like the Catholic system or otherwise, can lead a congregation astray or lead it into pathways that are not good, but hopefully with at least two, there's checks and balances and one can temper the appreciation of the others. And so it is. 
at least two, but notice what's more. I thought that since we're going to look in some detail at 1 Timothy chapter 3, I would call to your attention one of the phrases in verse 5. Look at what these elders do. Take care of the church of God. Jesus Christ Himself entrusts these men to take care of His flock, to watch over it, to ensure that it's faithful, or at least it's encouraged in that light. They take care of it. I would submit to you that is a rather remarkable consideration. Jesus died for that body, and yet He has entrusted these men to take care of it. I suppose it's fair to say that when you and I are given the opportunity to take care of something, maybe a friend, a relative, or a neighbor gives you something to watch over while he or she maybe is away, and you take very seriously. You don't want to harm it or damage it or injure it. You want to give it back in at least as good a condition as it was given to you. And yet these men are specifically said that they take care of the church of God. Let's add one more to that list. On many occasions, they are encouraged to feed, in fact, commanded to do so, to feed the flock of God. We've already learned today that's what a pastor does. Again, the preacher's not the pastor. The elders are the pastors. These are the ones who set before all of us the necessary spiritual food that we may grow thereby, that we may be moved in the area of faithfulness, and that we may live in harmony with that so that one day we can go to heaven. Can you imagine just for a moment the delight that must be present on the day of judgment when an elder or group of elders is able to stand before God and that flock in its entirety is entered into heaven because they were faithful. You know those men did a great job leading. And you know that they were in fact those who were prompted to do so because that's what the Lord wanted. One more thing. These elders... Notice that as they lead, they are committed absolutely to the Word of God. Titus 1 verse 9 points that out to us. They hold fast the faithful Word. And as we've often noted, that means to grip on to and not let go. They grasp it tightly. You and I, of course, thrill at the thought of our elders who are committed to this. It's not opinion they're interested in. It isn't speculation. It's not the overall winds of the brotherhood. That doesn't matter. They are only interested in the Word of God. They want to live faithful to it. They want us to live faithful to it. And so let's close that slide then with this observation. On a number of occasions then, what's connected to them is the thought of rule, R-U-L-E. We noted that briefly when we used the word bishop a moment ago. If they've been given oversight, that means those over whom they are overseeing are to respect their authority, to understand their position in office. No wonder in that light, Hebrews 13, 17 commands each of us to obey them which have the rule over us. Now it's true, they're going to have to give an answer, and it's our hope that they might do it, not in a dreadful way or in an inconvenient way, but that they might do it joyfully. 
you and I should strive then to live in such a faithful way that they won't have to spend any sleepless nights because of you or me. We want to make their life as overseers of God's flock as easiest as we can make it. So we need to live faithful to the Lord's Word. With all of that said, let's turn to 1 Timothy chapter 3 and let's begin to use the rest of our lesson highlighting a few additional points. I'm sure you're aware that the New Testament mentions in two different chapters the qualifications that are involved for a man to serve as an elder. Given what we've described so far today, it's not our surprise that God in His infinite wisdom would not want just anyone occupying the office of an elder. That man could do great damage or harm. Look at these verses. I'll begin reading in verse 1. This is a true saying. If a man desire the office of a bishop, he desireth a good work. A bishop then must be blameless, the husband of one wife, vigilant, sober, of good behavior, given to hospitality, apt to teach. Not given to wine, no striker, not greedy of filthy lucre, but patient, not a brawler, not covetous, one that ruleth well his own house, having his children in subjection with all gravity. For if a man know not how to rule his own house, how shall he take care of the church of God? Not a novice, lest being lifted up with pride he fall into the condemnation of the devil. Moreover, he must have a good report of them which are without." lest he fall into reproach and the snare of the devil. We'll stop at that point and notice a few observations. I have tried to be very brief. I've tried to list in a dramatic way some of those qualifications. Suffice it to say, we of course here at the congregation are in the process of appointing a man as an elder, consideration of that event, and as I mentioned earlier, it's a great thing. Verse 1 again says, it's a good work. And any man that desires it truly desires a good thing. In that connection, note some of the things that follows. First of all, any man that would be an elder must be a, a man who loves what's good, what's holy, and what's just. Now, that's the explicit wording of Titus 1 verse 8. In other words, his motivation in life, his attention is turned to things that are just and good and holy. But it's at this point, might I invite you to note the opening statement of verse 2. Here is one that at least has caused some controversy. It says, a bishop must be blameless. There are those who read into that the thought, this man's got to be perfect. There can be no sins, no flaws in his life. Let's face it. If that's our demand, nobody will ever be qualified to serve as an elder because elders make mistakes as well. They, in fact, do things. They involve themselves on occasion at least. They make poor judgments. The point is, the word does not mean perfect as in sinless. It literally means that to which something cannot be attached there must not be any glaring behavior in this man's life that's questionable. Something that is what you'd say, 
you cannot take hold of anything to accuse him. A generally good man who upholds what the Word of God teaches. Note what follows. He must be humble. Now Titus explicitly states it is not self-willed. He can't be an arrogant man. He has to appreciate he again is only the shepherd who serves the chief shepherd. And he'll always be in his will to serve the teaching of the Word of God. But notice in this light, one more thing is this, he's not soon angry. Be very leery of a man who loses his temper quickly. He's not fit to be an elder. An elder needs to be approachable. Members of the congregation need to feel comfortable bringing things to his attention. If they're fearful he's going to get angry or he's going to lose his temper, they just won't say anything and whatever the problem is will never get addressed. He's got to be humble, not soon angry, according to the words here of the inspired apostle. Let's add to that this one. He must be self-controlled. In the language of verse number 2, it says he must be vigilant. That word in the original language means temperate, which means he's got control of himself. He's not addicted to anything that would otherwise be improper or unhealthy. He's a man that's vigilant. In addition to that self-control, he's a man of good judgment. He again is not a novice, and his experience and his connection to the Word of God leads him to be wise in his administration. He is able to think things through and make sound judgments. No wonder then the last thing on that, he's not violent. Not violent. He's not, he does not strike. In many ways, the literal meaning of that, of that phrase. Let's add to that this one. Not greedy or filthy lucre. He's not involved in dishonest things. And money is not his chief object. And certainly we aren't surprised when it says he's not given to wine. He's no drinker. He does not approve in any way the social consumption of alcohol. We need a man, certainly as to be expected, who has the soundness of his mind and he thinks things through clearly. Finally, on that slide, you'll notice at the very bottom, apt to teach. Now, Paul doesn't give us more details about that statement. That means he may be an effective teacher in a public way. He could be a very effective teacher in a private way. This much we know, he must be apt to teach. He is able to set forth in conviction that which the Word of God teaches, and he does it without apology, and he does it without compromise. In addition to those things, notice what else. It is said in verse number 7, He must have a good report of them which are without. His hope, his desire will be to lead that flock. Others who know him, who may not be members of the flock, they at least need to have a respect for what he stands for. He doesn't compromise. He doesn't tell dirty jokes on Monday and then happily serve the Lord's Supper the next Sunday. That's not the kind of man he is. They respect what this man stands for because he lives in conviction that truth every day. To all of those things, two final thoughts. His priority perhaps is best stated. 
is you and I noted the word pastor. He wants those people to go to heaven he's serving over. And so he watches for their souls. And therefore, when an elder brings something to my attention, I should not immediately get angry and defensive. If he challenges me, I don't think what you're wearing is the most appropriate. We in love ought to thank that man who had enough concern for me to mention something to me that I ought to think about changing. If what I'm wearing is a distraction to others, or maybe it's not setting the right Christian example, I should appreciate his wisdom and his insight. And I suspect, though, far off, more often than not, our response is, How dare he? What I'm wearing is fine. If that's the issue, I'm the one with the problem. Now, upon discussion with him, perhaps there's additional matters, but I should not leap to the conclusion. Just because he's mentioned something, he's done it in love to me. One final thought on that slide, and it's this one. This man must be a family man. The next part of the lesson will develop that a little bit more thoroughly, but let's turn our attention to it in the following way. Because not only are there qualifications for the man who would be an elder, there are qualifications for his family as well. Perhaps sometimes we give less emphasis to this, but it's a part of the Word of God. I stopped reading in verse number 7 a moment ago. Let me continue reading. This time, let me come to verse number 11. Even so must their wives be grave, not slanderers, sober, faithful in all things. And so one of the matters that you and I must appreciate is that as a man serves as an elder, it will be an office that has great implications for every member of his family. It's that significant. If he doesn't have the support of a wife, he will never be an effective elder. If he doesn't have the support of his children, he will never be as effective as an elder as he could be. And I would even say, based on what we're about to study, that might disqualify him as an elder. Let's look at some of these qualifications. First of all, he must be the husband of one wife. Two different texts state that, not only in Titus 1, but in 1 Timothy 3. It is asserted that he must be the husband of one wife. Perhaps in that light, note the following. That means his wife. She too, as we've just noted, there are some things that she must exhibit. Look at verse number 11 again. First of all, she must be grave. What does the word grave mean? Well, I've asked you to note its definition. The word means venerable. It means dignified. It means serious. Here is the woman who will support the work of her husband as an elder. She needs to be serious about that work and serious about her position as a Christian wife. She's not known for being flighty. She isn't known for taking things less than serious. She isn't known for, in fact, looking past the importance of what the church is all about. Again, venerable. You might notice the word also goes on to say she must be sober. May I invite you to note, that's the same word that was used in connection to her husband. 
He had to be sober, so too does she. And that word literally means to abstain from wine. She's not a drinker either. And not only that, she lifts high the desire to think clearly and logically. She wants, you see, to always fully be subservient to the Word of God. Now, as his wife, she too answers to the same elders. She's a member of the church, so she will answer to her husband as he is an elder. He is not only her husband, he oversees her life as a Christian. Not only this, you notice that she is no slanderer. That's the very language of verse 11. Perhaps it's obvious what that means, but the connection is this. She isn't given to gossip. As an elder's wife, she may be privy to a fair amount of information about the membership of that church. She does not speak it freely. She keeps it as confidentially as she possibly can. Not only that, she is not given to false accusations. One final thing about these women. In a beautiful statement, the Holy Spirit said she's faithful in all things. We stated earlier that there's no single thing in this man's life you can catch him on. He's just a basically just faithful holy man. So too must his wife be. Faithful in all things. Not some things now. She must be faithful in all things. The overall tenor and thrust and character of her life is of a woman who loves the Lord and loves His Word and who in every way wants to be faithful to it. That must be true of this man's wife, she will have a great deal to do with the effectiveness of him as an elder. You may have noted earlier that one of the statements about an elder is he is to be given to hospitality, verse 2. I'd submit to you that that's perhaps one way in which his wife will have a tremendous role to play. You know, men just don't know much sometimes about how to do that sort of thing to be hospitable, to open your house and have the people in it. A woman knows how to do that, and she does it well. Well, notice, if an elder is to be given to hospitality, his wife will no doubt be a critical element in making that a reality. One final thing on that slide. So here's a man who is being considered as an elder. He does have a faithful wife, and that's wonderful, but that still isn't enough. He and his wife must have children. The last part of our lesson. Those children have qualifications. Yes, it's true. In fact, I would invite you to note for this one, Titus chapter 1 states it the most clearly. In Titus chapter 1, verse number 6, it reads like this. In a listing that describes the qualifications of elders, it includes this statement, If any be blameless, the husband of one wife, having faithful children, not accused of riot or unruly. These thoughts on this slide bring us to note this. An elder's children must be faithful. That's the word that the inspired writer used. It says, having faithful children... Now, that literally means children that, of course, are given in their conduct of life to those things that have been presented in the Word of God. So long as those children are under the direct leadership of that man, it ought to be understood that they're faithful. Now, certainly beyond that, 
even once they leave that man's house, you would think that the influence, the consideration, the imprint that he left upon them would still be a meaningful matter. At the very least, we could say, while the control is that man's, those children must be faithful to the extent that it goes on to say they must not be accused of either riot or unruly. I wonder what it means for a child to be accused of riot or unruly. Well, I've tried to indicate it on the slide. That word riot means profligacy. It means the direction and tenor of life for wickedness. To move in the direction that's unwholesome and unsound and that simply isn't good. His kids cannot be known for that. If so, he, he ought not be chosen for an elder. But not only that, notice this. There was another word used. It says unruly. Watch with care. If that man's children don't obey him, if they don't respect their dad, that man's not fit for an elder. In the course of time that he oversaw those children, they should have learned enough authority and respect that they would never be given to rebellious behavior toward him. If so, that disqualifies that man to serve as an elder. To say it differently, 1 Timothy 3 reads it like this. One that ruleth well his own house. Note the word rule. As the husband is the head of the wife, and thus he's the main leader of that family, the imprint of his authority should have been well appreciated. And notice... If he doesn't know how to rule his own house, you shouldn't expect that he will do anything good at leading the house of God. So today, as we've looked at the appointing of elders, we have highlighted what a serious thing it is. And there are qualifications for the man and qualifications for his wife and qualifications for their children because they are going to be great spiritual bulwarks of leadership in that congregation for years to come. And therefore, one needs to select wisely. I'd like to put before you that we're in the midst of a great moment of decision in this church. We're thankful to have men who are qualified to serve and who are willing to put themselves before us in that position. Let's pray for them. Let's pray earnestly for them. And let's always strive, of course, to be that kind of congregation of which Jesus Christ is most pleased. This very day, may I say as we close this lesson, that many of the qualifications that are true of an elder and his wife and his children are generally expected of every Christian. Now, not everyone, but almost all of them. And so you and I can ask of myself, am I rebellious? Am I unruly? Am I soon angry? If that's true of me, I need to repent and I need to start making some changes. Today, if there's anyone in the audience that would wish to make a public response to the Lord's invitation, we want you to know that Jesus loves you and He wants you to come to faithfully to His side. If you have never become a Christian, what better day could there be than this one? May I say that you, in a few moments, upon testimony to your belief, repentance, confession, and baptism, Jesus will add you to His church. If you've become a Christian and have known the blessedness of that kind of life, 
But at this moment, you're unfaithful. You've gone off in a particular pathway to where something can be attached to your life that's known not to be good. Change it. Now, I'm not saying it's easy, but it can be done. Because no temptation is taken you, but such as is common to man. But God is faithful, who will not suffer you to be tempted above what you're able, but will with the temptation provide a way of escape. 1 Corinthians 10, 13. Today, we'd be delighted to approach God on your behalf. As a wayward child of God, repent and confess those things. Invite us to pray for you. We'll do it. Today, if anyone would wish to come, we extend the Lord's invitation while together we stand and while we sing.